Our case concerns a fire which mysteriously started in room 66 at the Metropole Hotel Margate in October 1929. As a result of this, a young man, Sidney Henry Fox, was charged with murder. The son of a railway porter, Fox had lived a fantasy existence, spending money he didn't have and lying and cheating to get what he wanted. In this he was aided and abetted by his mother, Rosalind Fox, of whose killing he now stood accused. The trial opened on the 12th of March 1930 before Mr Justice Rowlett at Lewis Assizes. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sydney Henry Fox, you are indicted for the willful murder of Mrs. Rosalind Fox in room 66 at the Hotel Metropole Margate on October 23rd, 1929. How do you plead? Not guilty. Counsel for the prosecution was Sir William Jowett Casey, the Attorney General. It is the responsibility of the Crown to show that Sidney Henry Fox committed one of the most heartless and calculating crimes imaginable. The brutal, ruthless murder of his own elderly mother for financial gain. The first date of importance in this case was in the spring of last year, 1929. To be precise, April the 21st on which day the accused and his mother had taken up residence in yet another small hotel. This it, Sidney. That's it. And it's all here, what I said. I wrote it all out, just like you told me. You just read it over, and then the witnesses just need to see you sign it. Very well, boy. I guess you know best. I, Rosalind Fox, being of sound mind and body, do will and bequeath all my remaining property to my son, Sidney Fox. Hmm. And to my other son, William Edward Fox, I leave the sum of one farthing. <laughs> That'll teach the little blighter not to once come and see me when I was in that dreadful hospital. Before that day, the life of Mrs. Fox had not been insured. But nine days later, Sidney Fox, the only major beneficiary of his mother's will, took out the first of a long string of policies on his mother's life. They eventually totaled £3,000 and covered the period leading up to that fateful date in October. Fox and his mother moved from hotel to hotel, always leaving conveniently just before the bill was presented. Their final destination was the Hotel Metropole Margate. The manager, Joseph Harding, was the first witness for the prosecution. Mr Harding, will you tell the court the date on which the prisoner and his mother arrived at your hotel? Yes, sir. They checked in on the 16th of October last year. Well, I must say you've chosen well this time, Sydney. Yeah, looks all right, doesn't it? Now you just sit yourself down here. And I'll go and do the business. Righto. Oh, and Sydney. Yeah. Use Lieutenant Fox. It always goes down well in the posher hotels. 
right. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, uh, Miss... Um... Oh, Mrs Harding, sir. <laughs> Mrs Harding. I am Lieutenant Fox, the Right Honourable Lieutenant Sidney Fox, and I should like two rooms, one for my mother and one for myself. Oh, yes, of course, sir. If you'd be kind enough to fill in the register. With pleasure. We hope you'll enjoy your stay at the Hotel Metropole. <laughs> your keys, sir? Room 66 and 67. There's a communicating door between the two rooms in case that's helpful to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure they'll be perfect for our requirements. I'll just get someone to take up your luggage. Uh, well, we don't actually have any luggage. It's, uh, it's being sent on from our last port of call. Should be here tomorrow or the day after. Of course. Uh, I'll see Mother upstairs. Oh, Mr. Fox, excuse me, but you haven't filled in your home address. I haven't? <laughs> How stupid of me. Um, I'll put our country address. That's where we'll be heading on to in a few days. Uh, end view. 14th century farmhouse. Been in the family for generations. Lindhurst, Hampshire. Do you know the area? Absolutely charming. Oh, I wonder, uh, could you possibly do me another favour, Mrs Harding? Well, if I can, sir. Uh, this telegram, could you see that it is sent for me? Yes, of course. Thank you so much. Ready, Mother? Come along. Give me your arm. I know what you're doing now. Hello. Yes. Please send the following telegram. From Fox, Hotel Metropole, Margate, to Cornhill Insurance Company, London. And the message reads, Life policy on Mrs. Rosalind Fox due to expire today. Extend cover to noon 20 October. Could you please read that back to me? Excuse me, Mr. Fox. It is Mr. Fox, isn't it? Lieutenant Fox, yes. Uh, Harding, Joseph Harding. I'm the manager of the Metropole. Delighted to meet you, Mr. Harding, and to be staying in your excellent hotel. The thing is, Lieutenant Fox, uh, about your luggage, mm. it doesn't seem to have arrived. I understand it was sent on, but not, regrettably, here. Uh, Stupidly, and I have no idea how this can have happened, it was sent on instead to our country address in Hampshire. Then perhaps you would like us to obtain one or two essentials for you and your mother. Thank you, Mr. Harding, but I wouldn't dream of putting you to such trouble. Lieutenant Fox, about the bill, we have a policy at the Metropole of asking residents to settle their accounts on a weekly basis. Of course, and a very sound arrangement, if I may say so. Indeed, I should personally like to keep a daily check on how my account stands. Well, if you would prefer... Forgive me interrupting you, but um, could you tell me the time? Oh. It's uh, nine minutes past ten. Do you not carry a watch? I did, sir. My father's half-hunter, solid gold, stolen on the boat from France. Oh, Jostled by some ragamuffin, didn't think anything of it. Next time I looked, gone. Oh, um, I almost forgot. Um, this, this packet contains some very important papers, investments, wills, insurance documents, that sort of thing. Um, will you be kind enough to deposit them in your safe? Yes, yes, of course. I'll put them away immediately. Mr. Harding, would you tell the court what happened on Sunday the 20th of October? Yes. The prisoner ran downstairs and told me that his mother had been taken ill. He said she had collapsed in a dead faint. I sent at once for the local doctor, uh, Dr. Austin, that is, and accompanied Fox to his mother's room. How are you feeling now, madam? I don't know what happened to me. I came over all peculiar and 
I'm fine. It's all right, Mother. You're going to be fine. Good morning, Harding. What seems to be the problem? Oh, thank you for coming so promptly, Dr. Austin. It's Lieutenant Fox's mother. She's just feeling a little under the weather. Fainted quite away, didn't you, silly old thing? Ah, I see. <laughs> Has the lady been given anything? I used a few drops of salvolatilate to revive her. Oh, fine, fine. Yes, well, nothing too serious, I fancy. Uh, Mr. Fox, is your mother given to fainting fits? Never, sir. This was quite unexpected. Well, well, rest is the main thing. And a little tonic up. Give you a prescription and we should have you back on your feet again in a day or two. Thank you, Doctor. If you'll excuse me, I, I have to see to an important business matter. I'll be back shortly, Mother, with your medicine. It may not have been entirely a coincidence that that very day, Sunday the 20th of October, was the day on which the life policy on Fox's mother was due to expire. In fact, Fox's important business matter was the sending of another telegram to the Cornhill Insurance Company extending the cover on his mother for another three days. George Farmer, you are the proprietor of a chemist's shop in Church Court, Margate? Yes, sir. Did the prisoner visit your shop on Sunday the 20th of October? Yes, sir, he did. He had a prescription from Dr. Austin for a bottle of tonic, which I duly made up. Here we are, sir. That will be two shillings, please. Thank you very much indeed. I, um, I have a slight problem with which you may be able to assist me. Uh, my mother is ill in bed at the Metropole, hence Dr. Austin's visit, and I find myself temporarily without adequate funds... I've made out a cheque on hotel notepaper drawn on my banker's Lloyd's of Norwich for two pounds. If you will be good enough to deduct what I owe you and give me the cash difference, I should be most grateful. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sorry, sir, but this cheque is not valid. I can assure you, upon my word of honour as an officer in the service of His Majesty, it is a perfectly valid cheque. Uh, no, no, sir, I'm afraid it is not. A cheque, you see, requires two penny stamps. This only has one. I'm afraid I shall have to ask you to pay for your purchase in cash. I see. Very well, Mr. Farmer. I can assure you, Mr. Farmer, I shall be reporting this preposterous behaviour to whatever professional organisation oversees your activities. Very good, sir. Good day. Was that the last you saw of the prisoner, Mr. Farmer? Personally, yes. But the following day, Fox returned to the shop, shortly after I had left for lunch. Good afternoon, my dear. Is Mr. Farmer about? Oh, you've just this second missed him. He's just out for his lunch. Oh, how frustrating. You must be... Miss Allen, I'm his assistant. Yes, of course. He mentioned your name. Told me I should deal with you if he'd gone out before I got back. I expect he mentioned it. Uh, no, sir. Um, what was it about? Well, Mr. Farmer's very kindly agreed to help me. You see, I need a small cheque cashing. Well, I don't I... think Mr. Farmer ever cashes uh, cheques, sir. Not usually, I understand, but he offered to help me as I'm a personal friend of Dr. Austin, mm -hmm. who's currently attending my mother at the Metropole Hotel. She was taken ill there yesterday. Oh, how very unfortunate. Exactly so. And with a temporary problem in obtaining ready money, Mr. Farmer said he would cash this cheque for two pounds as a special favour. Well, I don't quite understand why Mr. Farmer didn't make the transaction himself. He would have done, of course, but stupidly, I only put one penny stamp on the cheque, so I had to go and buy another stamp. Anyway, here it is. It's all above board. Well, if you're quite sure Mr. Farmer said it was all right... Quite sure. Uh, would you like it in notes, sir? Thank you. That'll be fine. Fox needed the money to pay his fare to London. The dubious purpose of this journey was revealed by the next witness for the prosecution. Mr. Dunford, 
You're employed in the London offices of the Eagle Star British and Dominions Insurance Company Limited? Y yes, sir. And did you receive a visit from the prisoner, Sidney Henry Fox? Y yes, sir, I did. It was on the morning of Tuesday, the 22nd of October. I thought arranging such things was a relatively straightforward business. I dealt with the matter as quickly as I could, sir. Now, here's the document, Mr Fox, all drawn up as agreed. Uh, policy in the event of accidental death. Life assured, Mrs Rosalind Fox, currently resident at the Hotel Metropole, sum payable on death, £3,000. Period of cover, 24 hours. Excuse me, Mr Dunford, when mm. you say 24 hours, uh, at what time does the policy actually expire? Uh, midday, sir. Uh, noon. All our policies expire at noon. I see. Can that be extended? Well, yes, sir, if you have a specific requirement. Yes, I do. I want it to run until midnight. Midnight, Wednesday, 23rd of October. Oh, very good, sir. There is no record of how Fox spent the following day, the 23rd of October, but by the evening he was to be found drinking in the bar of the Hotel Metropole. Mrs Harding told the story. Mrs Harding, uh, was the prisoner in the habit of drinking in the hotel bar? I'd say he was there most nights, sir, but... And he was in the bar on the evening of October the 23rd last year? Oh, yes, sir. Along with one of the other guests. A regular at the Metropole, Mr Hopkins. Mrs Harding, when you have a moment, two whiskies and water, please. Very good, sir. What do you sell, Hopkins? Stationery and fancy paper goods. Ah. Always sell well in coastal towns. I have a theory that just being beside the seaside puts folk in a spending mood. <laughs> And you are a military man, I understand. Yes, with the additional responsibility of a large estate. Farmland, you know, in Hampshire. Really? I'm often in Hampshire. Lyndhurst. Look us up if you're ever in the area. Well, thanks. I may well do that. There we are, Mr Hopkins. Ah. Sorry about the wait. Some of these people don't seem to have any beds to go to. <laughs> well, what's the time, then? Well, it's gone 10.30. Don't you have a watch? Stolen when I was in London yesterday. There are so many cooks about these days. It's not true. Oh, it must be inconvenient, not knowing the time. Not at all. From the window in my room, I can clearly see the clock tower on the promenade. Now, uh, I'd best be getting to my bed. Oh, Mrs Harding, I should like a half bottle of port, if that could be added to my bill, and if I might borrow a small glass. Mother likes a glass or two of port to help us sleep, you know. Yes, of course. There you are, sir. Thank you. I'll uh, wish you all a good night. Uh, good night. Good night, sir. That's odd. What is? I don't remember ever having seen his mother drink. Mr Hopkins, please tell the court what you did following the prisoner's departure from the hotel bar. I had another drink and sat chatting to Mrs Harding. And um, to one of the other guests at the hotel, Mr Leonard Reed. Like myself, a salesman. Uh, at 20 to 12, me and Reed started making tracks for bed. And as we were coming through the lobby, Fox suddenly appeared. What was he doing? Running downstairs as if the devil in hell were after him. Oh, begging your pardon, my lord. But he was in quite a state. All he had on was his shirt and underwear, and he was bellowing and shouting fit to bust. Help! Fire! What, what the fire. devil's going on? There's a fire on! For God's sake, help me, Hopkins! There's a fire! Where? Up there, upstairs in my mother's room. All right, all right, calm oh, down. Read, yeah. ring that bell on the desk. We need Harding, the manager. Yeah, right. Help! Fire! Fire! There's a fire. Upstairs, Mrs. Fox's room. Oh, my word. She's in there. Mother's in there. Where's Mr. Harding? I'll fetch him. Joseph! Joseph! 
Come on, Reed, let's get up there and see what we can do. All right, which floor is it, old fox? It's room 66. Well, don't just stand there, man. Show us the bloody way. Is this the room? No, 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 this is my room. Go ahead. That door over there. Where does that lead? Uh, to my mother's room. Get it open, Reed. <clears throat> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see a damn thing? Yes, that's it. <coughs> over there, flame. <coughs> You're right. We'll never get in there. Oh, no, not through here, no. <coughs> Let's try the main door to the room from the corridor. <coughs> I called the fire brigade and the doctor. Is there somebody still in there? Mother! Mother's in there! Hopkins is trying to rescue her. Can you see anything, Mr. Hopkins? Yes! I found her! On the bed! Uh, I got her up! She's a dead weight! I'm bringing her out! Here she is! All right, Hopkins, we've got her! Mother! Mr. Hopkins! Here! Here! Uh, take my jacket. I can't leave her naked like that. <laughs> Help me with her, Mr. Reed. Uh, if we can just get my coat and a hoodie. Mother, mother. Could you see the fire, Hopkins? Oh, can't be sure. <coughs> Something's burning in there. Underneath the armchair, I think. Need some water. I'll fetch the jug from my room. Oh. Hopkins, Hopkins, did you see our handbag? You must be joking. I couldn't see my hand in front of my bloody face. Only there was money in it, you see. 24 pounds. I cashed the check myself. What the hell are you worrying about a few quid for? Joseph, how is she? Oh, not at all. Well, perhaps you could take oh. Mr. Fox along to our rooms. Oh, my, yes. Of course. Come along, Mr. Fox. Come, come along with me. But, Mother. Come along. Mother. Right, I've got the water. <laughs> I'll come back in with you. <laughs> be careful, you two! Oh, I... Good evening, Harding. I came as quick as I could. It's the old woman, Doctor. Here, here, let me see. Stand back out there. We're coming through with the chair. And it's still burning. I'll hold the door. Oh. Oh. Let's take it straight downstairs and outside. Oh. Well, Doctor, any hope? No. No, she's dead. Are you Inspector William Palmer of the Margate Borough Police? Yes, sir, I am. And did you investigate the scene of the fire in room 66 at the Hotel Metropole? Yes, sir, I did, in the early hours of the 24th of October last year. I was accompanied by Dr. Austin and the hotel manager, Mr. Harding. This is the room, Inspector. Well, what's this down by the bed? Uh, uh, half a bottle of port, empty. Glass used and a bottle of... It's a tonic, Inspector. I prescribed it myself. Oh, thank you, sir. A bottle of tonic. And this seems to be the old lady's handbag. Is there anything in it? No, sir. Completely empty. Interesting. Why interesting, Harding? Well, I've come to the conclusion that they didn't have a brass farthing between them, and yet Fox was adamant earlier that there should be £24 in that bag. Really? Now then, the bag clearly slept in. Or laid upon. Now, that is strange. What is? What a pillow. It's not on the bed. Oh, you're right. It's over there on that little table. But why would it be anywhere but on the bed? I can't imagine. Inspector Palmer, was this information reported at the coroner's inquiry? Yes, sir, it was, but a verdict was returned of accidental death, following which Mrs. Rosaline Fox was buried at Great Frensham in Norfolk. Was the case then closed, as far as the police were concerned? Well, not completely, sir, no. The prisoner collected £3,000 in insurance payments, and shortly afterwards the insurance companies involved expressed some concern about the circumstances of the accident on which they had paid out. Did you keep the prisoner under surveillance? 
Yes, sir, until he left the Hotel Metropole, which he did without paying his bill. A few days later, further information came to light. The manager of the Metropole, Mr Harding, received a telephone call. Yes, yes, I see. Well, thank you for getting in touch. I'm most grateful. Goodbye. Well... Who was it, dear? The Royal Pavilion Hotel, Folkestone. They read about our fire in the papers and wanted to tell us that Fox and his mother left them with an unpaid bill for over £15. Really? And what's more, they've made inquiries and Fox is no lieutenant and doesn't have any property in Hampshire. He certainly pulled the wool over our eyes, damn it. It might be even worse than that. The fire, you mean? Just supposing it wasn't an accident. Well, what makes you say that? That night, when his mother died, I brought him in here to try and comfort him. So? Joseph... Did Fox go into that room, when it was on fire, I mean? Why, no. The room was full of smoke. Mr Hopkins and Mr Reed went in, but Fox certainly didn't. Then if he didn't go into that room, how do you explain the fact that when I was holding him and he had his head on my chest, his hair smelt full of smoke? I think I'll call the police. What action did the police take, Inspector? Mrs Fox's body was exhumed, sir. And following the post-mortem examination, Sidney Henry Fox was charged with willful murder. Inspector, would you tell us the results of your investigations into the fire at the Metropole Hotel? The carpet in room 66 was very badly burned, and so was the underfelt. Even the edges of the floorboards were charred. Were you able to deduce the source of the fire? Yes, sir. It was directly underneath the armchair. But it's difficult to say how a fire could have started there. The chair was some distance from the gas fire, and being a gas fire, it would not spark or throw out pieces. And there were no burns on the carpet between the fire and the chair. I conducted tests, and even if the fender around the fire had got very hot, I'm talking about uncomfortably hot to hold, it would not set fire to anything. Inspector, being fully conscious, as you must be, of the seriousness of this question and the responsibility of the answer, I want you to tell the jury what conclusion your experiments have led you to with regard to the origin of this fire. Do you, or do you not, think this could have been an accidental fire? I can only say that I cannot find any means whatsoever of its having been an accidental fire. Inspector, thank you very much. Beloved, I next call Sir Bernard Spilsbury. Uh, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, and I conducted the exhumation of the body of Mrs. Rosalind Fox at Great Frensham Churchyard. Did you then carry out a post-mortem investigation? I did. Would you tell the court your findings? Firstly, I could find no soot in the air passages. Uh, what is the particular significance of that? Simply that a person inhaling any appreciable amount of smoke during a fire on the scale of the one in this case would inevitably get soot in the passages. Does this lead you to a particular conclusion, Sir Bernard? Well, yes, I would conclude that Mrs. Fox must have been dead before the outbreak of the fire. Supposing a person were asleep in bed and a fire broke out, is it possible for that person to asphyxiate without waking up? Not if there were any quantity of smoke in the room, as I understand there was in this case. There is no question that the choking effect of the smoke would rouse a person from sleep. Hmm. Did your examination show anything else? Yes, I discovered a large recent bruise on the back of the larynx. To what do you attribute that bruise? I believe it to have been the result of some handling of the larynx, such as found in manual strangulation. Were Mrs. Fox to have been the victim of strangulation, would she not have struggled? 
And would there not then have been other indications on the body, but a struggle had taken place? If a victim were to struggle, then yes, that would necessitate a much firmer grip by the assailant. But in many cases, strangulation has a paralyzing effect, and the victim drops almost immediately. Do you think such a woman as Mrs. Fox, possibly sleeping, would be able to put up much of a resistance? No, sir. And if there were no or very little resistance... Would that account for the absence of any other external marks on the body of the deceased? Yes. Supposing you had a case of strangulation by a pillow, placed with one hand upon the face obstructing the mouth and nostrils, the air passages, and the neck held in position, as it were. Would you get the symptoms you have found here? Yes. Under those conditions, it would be impossible for the victim to move her neck. It was a formidable weight of evidence that faced Mr. Castle's K.C. as he rose to open Fox's defence. You may build around a case of this kind a mountain of motive. You may surround it with suspicion. But if you do not prove that the person whose death you are investigating was murdered, your mountain of motive and all your suspicion are without value. I call Sidney Henry Fox. Fox, will you describe to the court the feeling between you and your mother? Excellent. The ordinary feeling between mother and son. Fox, is it true that you sometimes left hotels without paying your bills? Yes, sir. Do you admit that you made various statements that were untrue? Yes, sir. Why did you do that? To impress people. Turning to the events of the 23rd of October... When did you last see your mother alive? I left her sitting in the armchair in front of a fire, reading newspapers. Tell us what you did then. I had a drink in the bar, and I went to my bedroom at around 10.40. I fell asleep and was woken up by a rattling window. As I was getting up to put it right, I smelt burning. I remembered that I'd left mother sitting in front of the fire, and on opening the communicating door leading to her room, I was met by a thick cloud of smoke. I closed the door and dashed downstairs to give the alarm. While the fire was being brought under control, you were apparently anxious about the sum of £24 which you said had been in your mother's handbag. Did she have that money in her bag? No, sir. Then why did you say that? I didn't want anyone to think we were staying at the hotel without having any money. Fox, from the moment when you left your mother, sitting by the fire, until you opened the communicating door and found the room full of smoke... Did you go inside that room? No, sir, I did not. Did you ever grip your mother's throat upon the bed? Never, sir. Did you use a pillow to suffocate her? No, sir. Did you set fire to that room? I certainly did not. Fox, on the day in question, how much money did you and your mother have between you? About one pound, sir. And yet, were your mother to meet with an accident before midnight that day, you would find yourself £3,000 richer. Is that not so? Yes, sir. On your way downstairs to raise the alarm, did you have to pass the door to your mother's bedroom, room 66? Yes, sir. And did you open it to see if perhaps you could discover whether or not your mother was in danger? No, sir. I see. The communicating door... Between your room and your mother's, you told the court that you opened the door, saw the room was full of smoke, and then closed the door. 
Why did you close the door? So that the smoke didn't spread in the hotel. Why, with your mother in danger of being burnt to death, did you trouble yourself one tuppenny bit about smoke getting into the hotel? I don't, I don't know. I had not admitted that I closed the door. I very much doubt that I did. No further questions, my lord. It's always a gamble for an accused person to go into the witness box. For Sidney Henry Fox, it was a bet he lost. The judge directed the jury that there was no question of a verdict of manslaughter. It was, he said, murder or nothing. After an hour and ten minutes, the jury decided that it was murder. Sidney Fox was sentenced to death and was hanged at Maidson Jail on the 8th of April 1930. Rare, if not unique, among condemned murderers, he made no appeal. <laughs>